0: from St. Louis Public Radio.
1: This is St. Louis On The Air. So that's such a depressing thought. I mean, hearing you outline (laughs) this, it it all feels so true, but it also feels like the one constant is hate.
0: We are human. We always have bias and, and prejudice. I think we need to change the paradigm around how we look at that. Um, I think we're much more effective now at recognizing where we need to be, be be paying attention. That notion of if you see something, say something. I think folks follow a lot more carefully. This region's been been a bit goofy, right? Because
1: <laughs> that's one way to say it. <laughs> I,
0: and, and I mean that in the most optimistic way I can. Um, where we have a harder time is where the nuance of that bias and those subtle prejudices
1: play out. I'm Sarah Fetsky. Karen Oresti retired last week as the Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. In that job, Karen fought anti-Semitism, prejudice, and extremism through periods when it was top of mind for America and also when our energies were elsewhere. She fought the good fight at the ADL for 26 years. And joining us today to discuss that work is Karen Oresti, the outgoing Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Karen, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to be here. So May 31st was your last day. Big change. What made you want to leave the organization after all this time? You know, 20,
0: 26 years, twenty more than 20 as staff is, uh, is a long time to be engaged in one area. And there was something very true about this year in particular, and that was the optimism around it. Um, a lot of uh, efforts at positive change around the vaccine. A lot of change politically in the world, um, and a lot of people who were looking forward to doing good things. And interestingly enough, with Professor Kaplan's commentary, and even with this last piece, uh, a lot of optimism around what the future could be if we um, listened to each other a little bit more, if we had a better sense of where we are at, uh, if we could be more efficient with resources that people um, wanted to give. Um, all of those things came into play. And so I'm, I'm staying in the civil rights gig. I can't literally remove myself from that piece of it. Um,
1: but there are a lot of different platforms and allies in this town to work with. So these issues are going to remain important to you. It sounds like you would not have left if you felt like things were at a bad point. You you wouldn't have wanted to hand off the organization in a time of chaos or maybe pandemic, uh, beginning of pandemic.
0: Sure. Look, we've we've seen the rhythm of hate and bias and prejudice be a constant for decades and decades. And it's going to continue to be that. Um, After 9-11, we were watching extraordinary hate against folks who were Middle Eastern or were perceived to be Middle Eastern. There was the increasing conflict in the Middle East that challenged what we started to call anti-Israel or anti-Zionist anti-Semitism. In if I think back to 2005, 6, 7, where the um, big issue politically was immigration reform, we started to see spikes in um, hate crime and bias activity against those who speak Spanish or were, spe- were perceived to be in the what we now call the Latinx community, and up and down and up and down. And each time, it takes a little bit different approach to try and solve the problems, uh, and that's that's just never gonna
1: go away. So that's such a depressing thought. I mean, hearing you <laughs> outline this, it, it all feels so true, but it also feels like the one constant is hate.
0: We are human. We always have bias and, and prejudice. I think we need to change the paradigm around how we look at that. Um, I think we're much more effective now at recognizing where we need to be, be be paying attention. That notion of if you see something, say something, I think folks follow a lot more carefully. This region has been been a bit goofy, right? Because
1: <laughs> That's one way to say it. <laughs> I, and, and I mean
0: that in the most optimistic way I can. Um, when you look at some of the larger cities where really truly violent and unprovoked hate crime has been a norm mm-hmm. uh, in each of these cases, this region hasn't seen that. And regionally, I was in Missouri and eastern Kansas and southern Illinois. Mm -hmm. Where we have a harder time is where the nuance of that bias and those subtle prejudices play out. Um, And that's going to continue to be um, a a clear gig. But I'm not making it up when I say I have optimism around it because I think the public awareness about these conversations and the greater resources available, even those that are negatives like, some of the social media platforms um, are in the end going to be part of what's going to drive a much more optimistic result in the future Hmm. every generation we have an activity that we've done in education circles for a while which is that what it gets at is that acceptance that my generation is more respectful of difference than my parents and so on and so on and so
1: on are people giving themselves too much credit when they when they feel that way
0: No, I think they're willing to step out of their discomfort a bit more now than people were willing to do a few decades ago. Hmm. Um, I think there's more more awareness because there are more news sources. There are more platforms for people to tell their unusual stories that people aren't even paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And if we just stepped out of our own spaces of comfort and we spent a little more time learning about others – that bias would minimize, that fear would go away, and maybe even that opportunity to say, hey, maybe this is somebody I actually want to have some sort of relationship with.
1: Um, and
0: then, and so on, and so on, and so on.
1: So it, it feels like in addition to hate being this, this underlying thrum in America, it feels like anti-Semitism is just always, you know, as you say, there's been all these different groups that have found themselves in the spotlight. But anti-Semitism seems like there's there's always a, a level of that, right. even when attentions are turned elsewhere. Yes, there are, there are, you know, you
0: could say the world's oldest hatred. Um, I've often heard myself say Jews as the canaries in the coal mine. And often where Jews are targets Others tend to be targeted right behind them, because when you allow an atmosphere where people can play out their prejudices and their biases, um, then it's going to happen. And any one of us can be a target all the time. Um, That's where really big leadership comes in. That's where the confidence of stepping into spaces and saying, not on my watch, and this is exactly how we're going to respond to it, but bringing people along, not excluding them. And again, I probably could not use the word optimism enough, but my focus in my next gig will be to work on these issues from a place of empowerment. The conversation does not have to be a blame game around bias and prejudice. It can be uplifting personally and professionally for folks. Dare say there are even uh, allies we could work with who could make it fun, for instance, in the entertainment world, in music, in food. The the possibilities are endless. And the idea is to change that narrative of burden and turn it into something that says, hey, you know, maybe I do want to be on this bandwagon, because if I'm not,
1: I'm missing the party. And I want to be a learner. I want to be part of the party. So thinking of allies there, we got an email. um, This just came in. This is from a listener named Keith Rose. um, And they wrote that they participated in Ferguson protests and, and said this. I remember how upsetting it was for local activists to watch as Mrs. Oresti personally gave an award to the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department in 2015. That was one week before the first anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown and mere months after that same police department had made international news for its attacks on the black community. Under her leadership, the ADL was antagonistic of the efforts of Ferguson protesters and the complexities of that legacy should be remembered as well. I'm reading this now because I'd I'd like to hear your response to that. Uh, Um, I appreciate Keith sharing it because there's some misinformation in
0: there that I can clarify. Um, Number one, the reason why we were giving an honor and it was something that was planned uh, well enough in advance that I couldn't necessarily control the news cycle was that the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department back in 2000 four and five, became a partner with us in a police education program called Law Enforcement and Society Lessons of the Holocaust. It's a partnership that has been ongoing uh, here uh, since then and will continue even as the Holocaust Museum is looking at new vehicles to educate while they're under construction. Um, It's a program that we've been doing since the late 90s out of the DC Museum and six or seven other cities around. Basically what it says is to police officers Uh, you have to be aware of how the Nazis used police to take them from their role in protect and serve to persecute and murder. Hmm. It's not a a light, easy program. And uh, Metro PD at that time was a legit partner. They were having issues uh, around race in the department um, and excessive force cases. And the chief at the time said, yeah, we'll do this. And then by the time we gave them the honor... Uh, highlighting ten years of this partnership, we had been presenting the program to probably close to sixty different departments around the region, um, and I appreciate that there were departments who were willing to step up and make sure their officers came again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So I'm perfectly willing to accept the criticism that we were perceived to be supporting police at a time when that was the last thing anybody wanted to see, um, and yet it was the right thing to do, and I won't be defensive about it because. Again, finding um, a venue like a Holocaust museum that most people don't normally seek out unless they have to, um, and that's usually in school settings, Mm -hmm. uh, to learn about how police officers could become killers when under the right influence of policies and practices and structures is a serious high-impact learning opportunity. And it has to continue, and we have to figure out how many more police departments we can work with uh, to, to innovate programs like that. So, yeah, step, but look, I spent more than, <laughs> more than 20 years in the middle of folks uh, on either side of the political, political spectrum who had nothing but criticism for the work that we did. And I, criticism is great. I have no problem with that. Have a respectful conversation with me about how we could have done something differently, and I'm eyes wide open. Uh, But you have to look at both sides of the story and understanding. And that's what we don't do nowadays. So if I was optimistic for one thing, it would be that we could continue to have people say, you know, I really don't agree with you on that, but I'd like to understand why you feel the way you do. And maybe I'm still not going to
1: agree with you. But, but we're going to have a continuing and respectful conversation about it. Is there any group where you would slam the door? You would say, this, this group can't be educated. I don't even want to speak to them. Oh, look, there are professional haters out there,
0: people who have committed terrorist acts, domestic violence, who hate simply for the sake of, of hate. And I have zero patience for that. That said, there are some who would say to me, yeah, but there are some serious folks like Tom Martinez, Frank Mink, Derek Black and some folks who came out of white supremacy who when they got into situations where they met people who were different from themselves and their eyes were opened that those people were not awful as they had been taught to believe changed their minds and came into places where they were willing to talk Chris Chris Picciolini is another one Um, and those folks tend to be really great educators so you know it's always a balance. it's always gray. I am never part of a conversation where somebody says I are right I
1: am right therefore you are wrong hmm. Not interested in that at all so looking at what happened January 6th of this year, this was probably the final giant flashpoint of your tenure. Um, mm-hmm. What lessons do should we take as a country from that insurrection and what happened in D.C.? Some people will disagree with this. I'm,
0: I'm okay with that. Um, the optimism, for me, of the strength of our democracy. That it withstood this. You bet. Um, and that there are people who are willing to cross over political lines to say that that was the case. I know there's... A lot of concern about the small numbers of folks who are willing to do that, but that they exist means that they can be there to teach others, and um, and there has been a very robust and bi and I dare I say on occasion bipartisan response. Um, when it smacks people in the face that hate is something that everybody has a piece of, regardless of where they sit politically, the No Hate Act, um, the the um, uh, the COVID nineteen uh, hate uh, response to the massive spike in in Asian American, mm-hmm. uh, Pacific Islander hate crime, which was seriously for real and something to learn from, um, we're going to keep going. We are we are going to. Be reminded every single day that we have a unique place as a democratic institution. And we have to do it as well as we can. If we don't show the rest of the world that we can do it well, then
1: then we're in big trouble. And so you still kind of think of America as we're the city on the hill. We have some obligations here. I think we have no choice. We got a, a tweet from Simon who says, "I'm grateful to Karen Arresti's years leading Anti Defamation League Heartland. She visited my alma mater following a spate of unaddressed anti-Semitic graffiti, gave legitimacy to the concerns staff and students had, and is the sole reason our university president began to address problems." Thank you.
0: Thank you, Simon. I, you know, the the the. That's a leadership thing, right? So when leadership takes it on and isn't defensive and says, we've got an issue here, we're willing to be vulnerable, we want to learn from the impacted community and everybody who has a piece of this, uh, and then takes formal steps in order to see it through over the long term. Not a big fan of Band-Aids, not a big fan of window dressing. I'm a big fan of the arc of history and how effective that can be in major environmental change. Um, And the hate world is
1: one that requires that, mandates that be the case when it comes to leadership. So, Karen, in our final minute here, looking back on everything you did at the Anti-Defamation League and all the many issues you tackled, what are you most proud of looking back on on those decades? There are four pieces of legislation um, uh, in different issues,
0: uh, establishing the Missouri Commission on Holocaust Education and Awareness, A bill to fill a gap on um, reckless burning, that is when somebody intends to burn a cross Mm. um, that was missing in the hate crime law. Uh, The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which has two sides but allows people not to be burdened by government infringement of religious observance. Um, And a bill to uh, protect people who want to travel overseas uh, from discrimination in, um, in life insurance premiums to go to places like the Middle East uh, either on Hajj or to visit the Holy Land and not expect that the insurance company is going to outrageously charge them premiums if they want to increase their life insurance. Um, but I would ask people to look at Fleshner v. Pepos. It was a lawsuit in St. Louis County that was uh, in, in 2009, it was decided in 2010, where the Missouri Supreme Court unanimously uh, decided that if allegations of juror bias and prejudice come out after a trial is over, a judge now has a right to revisit those jurors, look at how the bias and prejudice might have directly influenced whether or not um, a party in a trial got a fair uh, hearing. And that didn't exist before that case. And, and that is something your organization fought for. We, we were contacted by the defendants who said, "They should they do this? Uh, Should they follow through on this, even though it was going to be a big deal for them? And I said, you bet. You have no choice. Hmm. And so you feel pride over that and and, and this legislation. And our
1: allies, Brian Cave, filed two uh, superb lawsuits for us and got it done. Well, Karen Arreste, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and wish you the best of luck. It's good to be here, Sarah. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad
1: ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more.